This morning, I want to talk to you about grace. Uh, Grace is probably not the first word that comes to your mind when you think about Leviticus. In fact, a lot of times we don't think about grace when it comes to any part of the Old Testament. We tend to think that grace is more of a New Testament thing with Jesus and salvation. and The Old Testament is more law and rules and judgment and all that old stuff. But that is really a false dichotomy. Grace is not just a New Testament concept. But grace is is really central to the entire storyline of the Bible. In fact, if I had to boil down the entire Bible, the one word... Grace might be that word for me. Whether it's New Testament or Old, grace is the strand that runs through every verse. Simplest way to define grace is God's unmerited favor. It's God acting for the good of those who do not deserve it. And we see that in the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, the very act of God creating the world was a gracious act. Think about it. God did not have to create the world with people. It wasn't because he was lonely or bored or he wanted to write a good story. He chose to create a universe tailored perfectly for humans to live in so they could know him. And he knew how it would turn out. He knew sin would enter the picture and that his creation would be damaged. And yet out of his grace, he still chose to create Even once Adam and Eve sinned, he could have scrapped the entire plan right there and said, no, no, this isn't worth it. But instead he made a promise that the seed of the woman would one day defeat the seed of the serpent. And with that promise, he began to unfold his great plan to redeem his people from the curse of sin. We see more grace all throughout Genesis with Noah's family on the ark. We see grace with God choosing a man named Abram and his family. We see grace with God's preservation of Joseph. We also saw grace all throughout Exodus. That was the book we just finished walking through earlier this summer. And and one of the key things we learned walking through that book is that when, when God's people were stuck in slavery in Egypt, he didn't say to them, hey, if you guys can get it together down there, I will consider saving you. No. Out of his grace, he rescued them from Egypt. He parted the waters of the Red Sea and made them into a mighty nation despite what they deserved. Even when they complained in the wilderness and wanted to go back to Egypt, he graciously led them on. He made a covenant with them on Mount Sinai through Moses. We talked a lot about that idea of covenant, how the covenant itself was a relationship on the basis of grace. It it formed an undeserved relationship between God and his people. And it was out of that gracious covenant relationship that God then gave them the Ten Commandments and the law. He said, you are my people. I am your God. Now here's how I'm calling you to live. He saved them first and then called them to obey. And that's really important that we get that order right. And then God came to live among his people in the tabernacle. That was grace. He gave them offerings and sacrifices to deal with their sin. He gave them priests to intercede for them. He didn't have to do that. That was grace. And we could go on and on. But as we wrap up our short series today through Leviticus, I want to hammer home this idea of grace. That from Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning of time until today, grace runs all the way through. It's God's unmerited favor toward us, and it's greater than anything else. 
Today we will tackle the last two chapters of Leviticus. And I want to really commend you. Uh, there aren't many churches uh, where people would stick around as faithfully when the pastor stands up and says he's going to preach through Leviticus. Um, I appreciate you hanging with me through some really tough stuff. But my hope is that you've begun to see why this book is in your Bible. And why it's still important for you to read and, and to know today. Most importantly, I hope you've seen how it points us to Jesus. Remember, Leviticus is the center point of the first five books of the Old Testament. It was the, the mountaintop where God gave specific instructions to the people through Moses on how to live with a holy God. At the center of Leviticus, the mountain of, mountaintop of the mountain, is the Day of Atonement, which was the most important day of the year for Israel. It was the one day where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and it served to cleanse the tabernacle and the people of sin. Then on the other side of the Day of Atonement, we saw last week the importance of holiness. <clears throat> why God is holy, why he wants his people to be holy. Let's look now at how this book ends. Leviticus chapter 26, I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. It says this, You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar. And you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reference my, reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down. And none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you faith fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. First half, chapter 26, lists out the blessings that Israel would receive if they obeyed God. And this is a good time to remind you of the utmost importance of reading Scripture in its context. You can imagine if someone took these verses, ripped them from everything else around them, and applied them directly to their lives today. And they would walk away after hearing what I just said, thinking, okay, if I do good and I do what God says and I don't sin, then God's going to give me good things. It says I'll have rain and land and produce, so that means I'm going to have plenty of money. And it says, I'll have peace. Nothing bad's going to happen to me. That would be the wrong way to apply this text. Because it disregards the context of Leviticus. And it fails to read the Old Testament in light of Jesus and the New. In just a bit, we'll think more about reading this as Christians today. But, but first, let's think about the context in which we find this chapter. <clears throat> I said at the beginning, Israel's already in a covenant relationship with God. They've already been saved by him, and he's already living in their midst. And it's out of this relationship that he then calls on them to obey. 
Remember that God's purpose for Israel was to be set apart and to be a light to the rest of the world. And these material blessings that Israel would receive for obedience served to show the world in this time that God was on their side. So these blessings were rewards for living as God's covenant people. And this would not have been really that unusual for the original readers of Leviticus. And in this time when people made a covenant together, it, it typically ended with, with the consequences for keeping or breaking that covenant. So the people knew part of this agreement with God entailed being obedient to him. We also need to understand that this is part of the old covenant, the covenant that we're not under any longer today. So these are not promises given directly to us. I'm sure you have discovered that obeying God and doing the right thing does not make you rich or keep you from harm. Now, does it mean this chapter is unimportant for us? It just means that we relate to it differently than Israel did. We are under the new covenant, and there are indeed blessings associated with the new covenant. We'll come back to that in just a bit. But the most important part of these blessings comes at the end. God promises above all else to give Israel himself. More than material prosperity, Israel needed God to be with them and for them. Their mission as a nation depended on his presence. And they had to obey in light of that. So those are the covenant blessings. Now let's turn to the bad stuff, all right? What was called the covenant Curses. Look at verses 14 through 17. It says, But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. Let's look here. What, what are the consequences of breaking the covenant? Well, they're pretty much the opposite of the blessings. Instead of peace, there's panic. Instead of health, there's sickness. Instead of prosperity, there's poverty. And again, we should not take this and apply it directly to us. Sickness and poverty and persecution are not necessarily signs of God's curse upon someone. Just as health and riches and peace are not necessarily signs of God's favor on someone. And we could come up with lots of examples in the world today and throughout history of really wicked people who had great material lives and really godly good people who had terrible material lives. These were curses given to Israel under the old covenant and they functioned as warnings God wanted to see the people that to reject him and break the covenant would be awful. There would be dire consequences. And one interesting thing we see is that the list of curses is a lot longer than the list of blessings. Because what we find is that there are stages to God's punishments here. And that sounds bad, but it's actually good because God wants to give Israel a lot of chances to turn back to him without Reading all of it, just look with me at different verses. I'll show you those, those different points where God calls them to turn back. Verse 18, he says, And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. Verse 21, 
Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. Verse 23 and 24. And if by this discipline you're not turned to me but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you. And I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. And verse 27 and 28. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. And I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You see, God's telling them. He's saying, hey, here's a chance to turn back. Because if you don't, we're going to have to keep going with this. But, but if here's a chance, you can come back. And let me just read for you the following verses. After this last stage of judgment. So you know I'm not skipping the hard stuff. Right? These are some of the most brutal verses in the Bible. <laughs> but we got to understand how bad things would get for Israel. Look at verses 29 through 33. You shall eat the flesh of your sons. And you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies Upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste, and will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land, so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. Man. That's tough. This right here shows us how serious it was to break this covenant with God. If Israel were to reject God and turn to other gods, they would lose everything. And if you read the rest of the Old Testament, you know that's exactly what happened. Israel had chance after chance to repent and turn back. They had generation after generation of warnings and warnings, and yet they continued down the path of rejecting God. And it culminated in the exile, that point where they were taken away by foreign countries into another land, out of the promised land. In the end, Israel lost every single blessing and received every single curse. Man, you said this sermon was about grace, right? <laughs> where, where's the grace in this? Well, let me show you. Chapter 26 does not end there. Thank you, Lord. There is one more part after all those warnings, and it's summarized right here. Look at verses 44 to 45. Yet for all that, is what God says, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them, so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. God says after all that, after all those curses and stages of judgment when they've lost everything still, I will not give up on them. I will not completely destroy them, and I will not break my end of the deal. I will remember the covenant, for I am the Lord their God. Man, this is a big deal right here. This is the grace. And no matter how far Israel would run, no matter how bad they would mess it all up, how many other gods they would worship, even when they're taken off to another land in exile, God's grace would go further still. 
further than they ever could. God would remain faithful even when his people would not. And we see this to be true throughout biblical history. God was faithful to keep his promises. He never gave up on his people. Despite everything, he kept a remnant, a remnant of true believers, and eventually he made a new covenant with his people. And we'll get to that. But let's look at the last chapter of this book. It's a little strange because, to me, chapter 26 feels like a nice conclusion, right? Blessings, curses, let's go home, right? But it's not the end. There's one more chapter in this book, and it's, it's kind of like an appendix, to be honest. We don't know exactly why it's where it's at at the end, but it's here. We're going to honor it, so let's look at it. Leviticus chapter 27, verses 1 through 8. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, If anyone makes a special vow to the Lord involving the valuation of persons, then the valuation of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old shall be 50 shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If the person is a female, the valuation shall be 30 shekels. If the person is from 5 years old up to 20 years old, the valuation shall be for a, for a male 20 shekels and for a female 10 shekels. If the person is from a month old up to five years old, the valuation shall be for a male, five shekels of silver. And for a female, the valuation shall be three shekels of silver. And if the person is 60 years old or over, then the valuation for a male shall be 15 shekels. And for a female, 10 shekels. And if someone is too poor to pay the valuation, then he shall be made to stand before the priest. And the priest shall value him. The priest shall value him according to what the vower can afford. This chapter is about a special vow that someone would make to the Lord involving the giving of something to him. And, and this seems strange to us, but it wouldn't have been that strange to the original readers. We're just reading it here a few thousand years later. This kind of special vow was beyond the required offerings. This was a situation where someone wanted to go above and beyond for God. They may have been grateful for God's blessing in their life or they wanted to voluntarily give something back to him in thankfulness. So that person would make a vow to give to the Lord themselves or their child or an animal or their land, anything essentially that was costly. And once the person made the vow to God, that was a binding agreement. That person, that animal, that piece of land was to be given to service to God. Again, this, this seems strange to us, but we actually may be more familiar with it than we think. Think about the famous Old Testament story of Hannah. It's the best example we have of this kind of vow. Hannah was unable to have children. So she went to the tabernacle and she made a vow to God. She said, God, if you give me a child, I will give him back to you. And what happens? God gave her a child. And she gave young Samuel to live in service to God at the tabernacle. And that's what we see here in Leviticus 27. Okay, but what's up with those values that are placed on people? That's kind of offensive. What's going on here? Well, let's think for a second. If a person made a vow and they could not fulfill it, or maybe they didn't want to fulfill it, they could redeem their vow by paying a cost instead. That way, they still honored the Lord. And because this was a manual labor society, men were more costly than women because of their relative strength. Adults were more costly than children, and so on. The animals, the land, the homes, they all had cost associated with them. All of this is so that if you changed your mind, or if you were unable to fulfill your original vow, there was a way for you to still honor the Lord and keep your vow. And that's where we find the grace. 
Again, it's strange, I know, but consider the idea. The whole reason this chapter had to be written is because God knew his people would not be able to keep their word. He knew he'd have to make a way to help them out, and so he did. That's grace. Leviticus, like all of the Bible, is a book about God's extraordinary grace. That despite what people deserve, God's grace is greater. God's grace is greater than broken covenants and broken vows. When people are faithless, God is faithful. And this grace in Leviticus points us, as we've seen all along, to the ultimate grace that you and I have in Jesus. So let me close this morning by showing you two ways that these last two chapters point us to the grace of Jesus. Here's the first. Number one, we find that Jesus took our curse to give us his blessing. Uh, Blessings and curses are a major theme in the Bible. But what is a blessing? Fortunately, we, unfortunately, we think of blessings today as just like good stuff happening to us. Like we got a new job or a new relationship or a new car or something. But, but biblically speaking, a blessing is the favor of God. This isn't just like God sending down some really nice thing for you. No, blessing ultimately is, is living in the presence of God, being with him. So anything that brings us closer to God is a blessing. Anything that doesn't is a curse. And we see this all throughout the Bible. In Genesis 1, God says he blesses his creation. He blesses Adam and Eve, and they live in this perfect world with him in his presence. Then Genesis 3, sin enters the picture, and they're cursed. Creation's cursed, and humanity is banished from God's presence and separated from him. From then on, the rest of the Bible is about being restored to the presence of God. God chooses Abraham. What does he tell him? He says, I'm going to bless your family. And through you, I'm going to bless all the other nations on the earth. From Abraham comes the nation of Israel. And we've talked all about this in Exodus and Leviticus. God wanted Israel to experience the blessing of his presence. So he came to dwell among them. And that brings us to the conundrum of Leviticus 26. The people are unable to fully obey the covenant. Therefore, they cannot escape the curse. And we see what happens when they get sent off into exile. Once again, God's people are removed from his presence. So how does God fix that? God makes a new covenant. And in this new covenant, he makes a way to deal with the curse of sin and bring his blessing back to his people. Uh, Paul in the New Testament talks about how God did this in Galatians chapter 3. Listen to this, verse 10. It says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Here's the, Paul, the problem Paul lays out. He actually quotes here from Deuteronomy 27, which is very similar to Leviticus 26, which says if you don't keep all the law, you're going to be cursed. So he says everyone who relies on the works of the law are under a curse. And, and the key word there is the word Rely. If you put your faith and your trust and your own ability to keep the law and follow the rules and be a good person, you will never make it because none of us can do that. None of us are perfect. Trying our best to be a good person just ends up with us being cursed and separated from God because we're all sinners. As Paul continues, Galatians 3, verses 11 and 12. Now it's evident 
that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Here's the deal. Paul says, if none of us can keep the law and therefore we all end up receiving the curses of sin, then then none of us can can be with God. Yes, there's, there's a blessing for keeping the law. The one who does them shall live by them. But that's not any of us because we've all broken the law. So what's the solution for us? Here's the key part, Galatians 3, 13 and 14. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that's us, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Guys, this is is amazing. Don't miss this. As sinners who have broken God's law, I deserve his curse. That means I deserve to be judged for my sin and separated from God forever. So here's how God brings his people back to his blessing. He sends his son, Jesus. And Jesus redeems us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. All the curses that we read in Leviticus 26, all of those awful consequences and judgments were poured out on Jesus instead of on you. And that happened when Jesus died on the cross. He took your place. And Paul quotes another verse from Deuteronomy where it talks about execution back in Jewish life. They would hang the lawbreaker from a tree. And that would be a sign to the community that they were under God's curse. So when Jesus was hanged on a cross which was made from a tree, what do you think that meant? It meant that Jesus was being cursed in our place. He bore the full weight of sin and he cried out and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But don't miss verse 14. Jesus flipped the whole script. Jesus, the most blessed man to ever live, took the curse of sin upon himself So that we, the real sinners, might become the most blessed men and women to ever live. So yes, we as Christians are extraordinarily blessed. But it's so much more than than any physical blessing or material wealth or health. Rather, Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We've been given spiritual blessings that are not temporary like earthly blessings, but they're kept for us in heaven to be enjoyed forever. And at the end of the Bible, that's exactly what we see play out at the very end of time. It says God's people will spend eternity in endless blessing in the very presence of God where the curse of sin will be no more. We'll have a new earth and a new creation. That's all because Jesus took our curse to give us his blessing. Here's the second, last point. These two chapters, Leviticus, how they point us to God's grace. Number two, Jesus kept our vow to give us his faithfulness. As sinners, I'm a vow breaker. I've I've not kept my word to God. I've sinned against him. I've rejected him, and therefore I need to be redeemed. Just as we saw in Leviticus 27, I need someone to pay the price and fulfill my vow. Who, oh, who could have done that? Jesus did, of course. 
Jesus fulfilled every vow. He was perfect. He never sinned against God, and he always kept his word. And yet he also paid the price for our broken vow that we could never keep. He died giving his life in our place as a payment and purchasing our redemption. And when we trust in him, we get his perfect record and he gets our imperfect record. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. says, for our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus was perfect and yet he became sin for us. So that in him, in Jesus, we... Me and you might become the righteousness of God. Jesus received our sin, and we received his righteousness. When we were unfaithful, Jesus kept our vow for us, and he gave us his faithfulness, all so that we could be redeemed and made right with God. Friends, that is grace. Do you see how this all points to Jesus? Every part. Every part of the Bible is about him and his grace. So what else could we do but fall on his perfect grace? Admit we don't deserve it, that we're sinners who need a savior and trust in Jesus. His undeserved favor freely given to you. That's grace. The question now is, will you trust him? Will you trust, will you believe in that message we just read on the screen? It says, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will be saved, will have eternal life. Let's bow our heads this morning.